This is Matt Hurt at Obsessive Viewer on Twitter with a bonus episode of ObsessiveViewer.com's The Obsessive Viewer Podcast. Welcome to The Obsessive Viewer, we're a weekly movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic, be it genre, trope, movie, or show, each episode. You can find back episodes at ovpodcast.com, find the blog at obsessiveviewer.com, and you can also subscribe to the subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer. If you want to help support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer, or you can simply leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us out a ton. And today on this bonus episode, uh, we'll be reviewing Hulu's recent event series adaptation of Stephen King's 112263, starring James Franco. And joining me today for his first guest appearance on the podcast is Brian Davids from Film Schlubs, uh, a terrific movie and TV podcast that Brian has graciously had me on as a guest several times. Uh, Brian, thank you for joining me today, and uh, how's it going, bud? Matt, it is an honor and a privilege to be joining you on the Obsessive Viewer podcast. Well, I'm glad to have you on finally. It's been pretty long overdue, and we're going to have you on again soon um, for The Path as well. So I'm looking forward to that. That'll be interesting. Oh, yeah. Have you watched any of that yet? I'm three episodes in, so I'm going to reserve nice. judgment until our review, though. So Nice. I'm still I'm – still, I still haven't watched it because I'm doing the same thing I did with 11-22-63, just kind of letting it build up. Um, but it's, it's kind of tempting. Uh, so you are – you are forcing Hulu's model to become Netflix's <laughs> model by pretty putting them much, back up. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And we've we've gone uh, into kind of a Twitter uh, conversation about Hulu and, and Netflix and everything um, in the past. What, what do you think of Hulu's whole business model before we get into the episode here, just as a brief tangent? Well, I think it's maddening that they're charging $12 per month for no commercials when their original content is nowhere near Netflix's original content. Now, Netflix, as of, I believe, yesterday, is now raising their prices, and I knew that would happen mm-hmm. as soon as Hulu came out with their $12 price per month. So if Netflix has better content, why wouldn't they charge more when they had that advantage over Hulu? So th- Hulu is is really screwing things up for the rest of us who liked our current pricing point on Netflix as well as Amazon. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and I don't really mind. I like, I've never really minded the Hulu ads or anything. Um, recently I've been watching a lot of it on my laptop and whenever it goes to ads, it gets just slows to a crawl and it's really nerve wracking. So that kind of made me hate everything about Hulu <laughs> for a brief moment. But in fairness, um, though, Hulu's Hulu's original content is getting better. It is. They're spending a lot of money on it. But right now, they're really known for the existing works, the the works from other networks that they're able to buy up and have exclusives on because these other networks are unwilling to deal with Netflix because Netflix is such a competitor now with their mm-hmm. own original content that Hulu is not only making bigger cash offers – but they have less of an original library that poses a threat to these other networks. So that's why they're getting Seinfeld, and that's why they're getting uh, so many exclusive streaming packages that Netflix used to have and no longer has, such as Battlestar Galactica. Uh, there, are, there are countless other examples. Oh, yeah. It's it's an interesting time to kind of be a fan of these I don't even I don't even want to say alternative viewing options because now they're kind of the norm. Um 
in terms of kind of overtaking network TV and, and cable TV and, you know, traditional television viewing, basically, from my perspective at least. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here on out, basically. And then Are you a cord cutter or not? Pretty much, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't have like a – I don't have a basic cable package or anything like that. I just have just – local channels and then basically everything i watch is via netflix hulu amazon um or google play which i've recently gotten into uh buying season packages on uh or season passes on google play and just uh casting it to my chromecast which is pretty effective and it's funny because recently um the one show that i did that with recently was uh, sci-fi's the expanse and each episode of that they had like a an extra episode that was a behind the scenes thing, like uh, like how HBO does their inside the episode thing, right? And it's funny because the DVD is now out, the DVD and Blu-ray for the Expanse is out, and I looked, I was at Best Buy just browsing, and I looked at the back, and like the only special feature on there is just deleted scenes, and it's kind of funny that I paid the equivalent price for a physical copy of it, and I got more content than people that have physical have the physical copy of it. It's just kind of crazy to me. How does Google Play's pricing compare otherwise? More, um, more affordable, about the same? It's pretty affordable. It's I think I paid like maybe like 25 bucks for the season, um, which isn't bad. It, well, it isn't bad, but it was like a 10-episode season, so it's not like a full 13 or 24-episode season. But I felt like it was worth it. Um, especially because I have a, if I, I have an Android phone and I have an app that's uh, the Google Play Rewards, where basically it just gives me surveys based on my location and it credits me with Google Play credit. So that's how I basically rent and uh, I buy content on Google Play is through that. I see. So yeah, yeah, I'm still paying $250 a month for a cable package <sighs> plus plus internet and phone, and yet I never watch cable. I never utilize my DVR. Mm-hmm. Everything I watch is essentially online now. So one of these days I'll have the courage to cut the cord. <laughs> but for now, I am giving myself unnecessary punishment. That's, man, 200. That's insane. I know. Uh, like, or at least I'm just thinking about from my perspective. Like I'm on a pretty tight budget, so it's kind of crazy to think that. Like My, my, uh, my contract just expired for uh, Comcast, so I had this really sweet introductory um, like first like joining a contract with them where it was basically just 10 local channels and like a couple cable channels here and there plus HBO uh, for and internet and everything for uh, $45 a month with no DVR, no HD or anything, but I didn't watch anything on TV anyway. Uh, And so that was pretty sweet. And then once it expired, it just jumped up to like 76, which is still pretty good. Um, And I still got HBO and everything. So I can't really complain, but, it's I can't think to to spend like two hundred bucks. Like my sister and and her boyfriend, like they have like a weird setup where they have like Directv and Comcast for wow. some weird reason. I thought I was yeah. a glutton for punishment. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, I can't. They explained it to me at one point. I was just like, "That's so much money. That's so much money." I'm guessing he but. wants the football package that Directv offers. Yep. Yeah, that's got that's so. got to have something to do with it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's that's the case. But um, you Colts fans, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, do you consider yourself a Colts fan, or do you abstain? Eh, I, I pretty much uh, just I don't ignore sports or anything, but I'm just not a sports fan. Like I'll I'll like I'll catch bits and pieces in passing. Um, 
or in running because <laughs> yeah um <laughs> that's ridiculous but um no i'll catch bits and pieces here and there but i don't i don't consider myself a sports fan because i have the mentality that if i have to be a fan of something i have to just like throw everything into it so like with movies and tv like i when i when i want to check out like a tv show or a movie if it's like i need to like prepare myself to consume all of it as much as i can basically i i don't know it's it's kind of a I don't know. My brain is weird, I guess. How does the state of Indiana feel about Andrew Luck's neckbeard? <laughs> because the rest, I, of the, the rest of the country is obsessed with it. It. I think that there, there is an obsession. I have friends who are like really like, – like uh, female friends who are like obsessed with him like on a very stalkery level. Um, and he's been to uh, – he's been to some conventions. I guess he's a big Settlers of Catan fan. And he's been at, I think he was at, no, he was at Gen Con. We were at Indie Pop Con and, um, yeah, I don't know. So, so he's, I, I don't know. He, he seems like an interesting guy. But I'm sure uh, you're a huge Pacers fan. I'm, I'm oh. guessing you're a giant Pacers fan. <laughs> when it comes to sports, I pretty much know football passingly well. And then with basketball or any other sport, it's like, I'm just like, yeah, I'm, not really uh really that knowledgeable about anything i've been to one pacer game i think when i was in like junior high um what about the indianapolis 500 oh yeah yeah that's uh it's funny because i lived for uh, about 20 years uh in speedway which is the town that the ims the the indianapolis you lived speedway on the is. track no 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 <laughs> i lived in the town uh, about a mile from the track and actually when i moved the stadium? No. <laughs> Although my brother used to live like a like a block away from the track, but um but no, and then now I live just about I'm right outside of the town. So I mean yeah, I I mean I I've been to the 500 a couple times, but you you're never into it though. No, never really into it, but I mean when I was a kid we used to pick pick drivers out of a hat and kind of have a pool for like the whole family and we'd sit by the radio and listen to it because there'd be blackout for uh the oh, area. Yeah. So, is it a small so, town speedway? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's pretty small. They're really expanding their main street area to have more, like, more stuff to attract people to it. It's it's really cool. So the town's economy relies on that race every year. It sounds like. Yeah. The they have the Indy Five Hundred, the Brickyard Four Hundred, and then they have the uh, MotoGP and something else. I think. Uh, so so they they have some good stuff that um comes through not year round or anything but um yeah i don't know it's but i'm sure they're selling merch year round you can buy an indianapolis 500 burger at every restaurant there (laughs) it's like miracle texas on the leftovers (laughs) i still haven't watched the leftovers oh my god i know i know i'm signing off (laughs) well it's great having you come on Um, matt (laughs) i know i'm really i'm really behind on that i was yeah, I have no excuse, but I'm going to watch it soon because I'm a I was a huge huge Lost fan. So, um, to the audience listening, make sure Mr. Hurt falls through <laughs> on these words. When uh, we'll we'll have you back on when the third season wraps up and we'll do a full series retrospective. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. All right. So let's get into the let's get into uh, 
some stuff here. First, uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with uh, your work, tell us about f- Film Schlubs, what it's about, how you how you got started, and some notable episodes and stuff like that. Well, Film Schlubs is a weekly TV and movie discussion podcast. I do interviews occasionally. Right now, the movie talk show is currently on hiatus as we're focusing quite a bit on Better Call Saul by way of our TV talk show. In addition to that, I've been interviewing people associated with Better Call Saul every week. I just interviewed co-creator Peter Gould. I interviewed Michael Slovis, who directed episode 206. He was also the director of photography on Breaking Bad. I just interviewed Ray Seahorn, who plays Kim. So I've really been focused on that while putting the movie stuff on hold. But once Better Call Saul ends, our traditional format will be weekly movie talk as well as weekly TV talk. TV talk, we make the rounds in the world of television and discuss uh, various news items. And then at the end of each show, we discuss spoilers for a couple select shows. Right now, it's Better Call Saul. And kind of the same format for movie talk. We talk movie news, box office, what we've been watching. You've guessed it on several episodes, such as Mm -hmm. Brooklyn, which I greatly enjoyed. And uh, to conclude each episode of movie talk, we focus on a featured movie that's in theaters and do a non-spoiler and spoiler discussion. So there are a lot of podcasts that have similar formats, but we bring our own personality and sense of humor and uh, preparation to it. And I think uh, if you're a fan of the obsessive viewer, you might be a fan of obsessive schlubs. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Film schlubs. (laughs) Right on. Yeah. And I vouch for it completely because, I mean, man, it blows my mind how much – because clearly you put a lot of work into the podcast and it's always kind of – not intimidating, but it's always like, man, I need to – I just – I can't imagine how much work goes into the podcast and everything. And like for this episode, I made notes and everything – and that's something I don't normally do, but I I did it for your benefit because I know that you are accustomed to it. So, yeah, I, I am over prepared. I spend probably three to five days editing. I go through every second and I cut out every noise that I don't want to hear that I think the listener wouldn't want to hear. Mm-hmm. I'll trim points down to make them more concise. I add music. I add sound bites. I'm really, really. I really overdo it, to be quite honest. But (laughs) at the end of the day, the listener gets to hear a very tight show, a very content-focused show that doesn't have any filler, you could say. So the end product is worth it. It's just it's really hard work to get there. Just a quick origin story. Film Schlubs, we've only been around since last July. Jurassic World was the first film we reviewed. I think we were also doing True Detective Season 2 instant takes at the time, which somehow remain among the most popular things we've ever done on our channel. That was kind of a trial run, and it seemed to go well, all things considered. Although I'm sure if I heard those early episodes now, I'd feel otherwise. But I was already contributing to a couple podcasts here and there, including the finest Leftovers podcast there is, The Living Reminders. So that's where the itch really started for me, and since then, I haven't really stopped. So Matt, I'm sure you have a similar story as that. But I'd always planned to launch a Better Call Saul podcast. However, it ended up taking far more time than expected. And in the process, it just became much bigger. And that's why we now cover everything in TV and film while conducting interviews as often as possible. I love a great interview as it's an art form in and of itself, whether it's Howard Stern or Mark Marin or Terry Gross. So I'm really doing my homework as far as how to give a great interview. And it's, uh, it's a work in progress. 
But since July, we've progressed quite nicely. We found a comfortable format for both the TV and film shows, while the production value and quality of guests have both increased as well. That's not a slight towards our earlier guests. We've just been on a roll of late for being such a young podcast. So the film show has rotating guest co-hosts like the obsessive Matt Hurt. That show will be back in early May. I think Green Room or Jungle Book will be our first review back. However, we have several reviews that we banked during the hiatus. On Film Schlub's TV Talk, I have a regular co-host. That's Shane Bowman from HeisenbergChronicles.com. But overall, we just want to provide great content, whether that's TV or film-related or a great interview. So that is our not-so-quick origin. Man, you've lined up some really incredible guests, so it's really impressive. I just spoke to Dave Chen from the Slash Filmcast as well. Right. So I, I know he's had a big influence on your podcast as well as mine, as well as probably every film podcast that's out there for the most part. Oh, absolutely. That's a cool conversation I'll be releasing later this month as well. Yeah, I was super jealous of that. So I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, what, what you guys talked about and everything. Um, well, thanks, Matt. I, I enjoy, always enjoy having you on. So, of course, I'll be having you on soon, perhaps for the Jungle Book. Jungle Book? Possibly. Very possibly, possible. Maybe. We'll oh, see. Yeah. <laughs> So before we get into our actual review of 112263, I just want to get your uh, thoughts on Stephen King and his work and if you're familiar with him or if, you've, if you are a fan or if you don't really like his work or anything like that. Um, so what do you think of Stephen King and uh, also King adaptations that have come in the past like the It miniseries, the Under, Under the Dome series, of course, the kind of reigning champion of – uh, popular Stephen King adaptations, The Shining, uh, also Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile. Um, the list goes on and on because he's kind of crazy about just giving his the rights away um, to his work. But how do you feel about Stephen King and about movies and TV shows that have been adapted from Stephen King's work? Full disclosure, I'm not a big reader. Mm -hmm. Just because I grew up really into music. I'm a guitar player. I'm a musician. I spent all my time really listening to music. So I didn't do much reading unless it was school required. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I didn't read any extracurricular books, but for the most part, I don't think I've ever read a Stephen King novel from start to finish. However, I have seen plenty of his works adapted. Mm -hmm. Pet Cemetery was the first film that scared me to death. I was terrified <laughs> the first time I saw Pet Cemetery. Huge fan of The Shining, even though he hates what Kubrick did to it. Right. The Shawshank Redemption is one of the greatest movies ever made. My dad actually passed up an opportunity to be a producer on that film, and I oh, wow. never I never stop reminding him of that mistake. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to call him after this conversation and let him know what a mistake it was. <laughs> That's awesome. The Green Mile is great. Um, Carrie I enjoy. Uh, the remake, not so much. Of course, the original one. So I'm a fan of the films for the most part. I just I'm not familiar with the novel form, which is obviously the greatest form of Stephen King art from what everybody says. What about you? Absolutely. And I'm a, I'm just a huge, huge Stephen King fan. I uh, basically have I, – I credit uh, The Dark Tower as being one of my favorites or my go-to favorite like long-running series of novels. Um, the Dark Tower is unlike anything really he's ever written. What it's, do you think of McConaughey? Oh, oh man! The casting for that movie is um, insane. It's amazing. It's uh, McConaughey is going to play kind of the 
the the man in black, which is the kind of antagonist of of the first movie at least, um, and he's going to nail it. Like that is that's going to be a role that if they do it right, it's it's he's going to he's going to just knock it out of the park. And then uh, Idris Elba is going to be playing Roland, which I think is an incredible choice because he has that presence and he has kind of a an imposing poise or, or an imposing presence that I think he could really do a lot with that character. Is that the and, protagonist? Yeah, yeah. He's the uh, the gunslinger from uh, okay. the gunslinger. And there's been a lot of – we talked about it in the most recent episode of the podcast, but they've there's been a bit of a backlash because Idris Elba is, is black and right. – Roland in the books is is white and it's just who cares it, yeah exactly and it sucks to see that backlash towards something that I hold so dear to my heart a good performance makes you forget skin color and all that stuff exactly exactly a Ugh. good performance will suck you in and you'll forget all about that extra curricular stuff i don't know why i keep saying that word <laughs> but is aaron paul still linked to this project in some capacity eddie was eddie dean a character in this novel yes and man i hope that he is like it's funny because when i read uh eddie dean pops up in the drawing of the three which is the second book of the dark tower series and at the time that i first read it i was i think that was the the when i first got into breaking bad and I mean, like Eddie Dean in the book is he he's a uh, he's a heroin addict who gets kind of drawn into Roland's world, hmm. and it's I mean just from the first page of his entrance, I was like that is Aaron Paul completely, um, <laughs> and I just I pictured him the whole time, and I like freaked out because I think he I think when he was on the Nerdist, um, he mentioned the Dark Tower series and yeah. said that like he would love to be in it, and I was just like this this would be the greatest thing ever. And there were rumors about it. And then he had tweeted at Stephen King and said like, Hey, is there any, uh, can you, uh, help me out with these rumors, uh, and throw in a good word for me. And I was just like, and like Stephen King replied to him and I was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened. He talked to Ron Howard about it. I don't know if Ron Howard is still the director that's attached to it, but he's, he's not, I think Ron Howard, he might have like a producer credit or he might be involved in some, in some way, I don't think he is though. But uh, this guy uh, Nikolai Arcel, I think is how it's pronounced. He is uh, he's going to be the one that directed it. And it's funny because he actually wrote or he read. He's a big Dark Tower fan, and he actually learned English. This is what he said, at least. I don't know. This could just be PR or whatever. But he said that he learned English so that he could read the Dark Tower in its wow. native language. Which I mean, if that's an endorsement for a guy to direct the series, then yeah, <laughs> I'm all for it. Do you prefer or do you think it's absolutely necessary that when someone takes a project like this, be it a director, be it a screenwriter, that they be an existing fan? Do you think that's absolutely necessary to um, get the best quality possible? I would I would say so. I mean, if J.J. Abrams wasn't a fan of Star Wars already, we would not have gotten the movie that we got most likely. Although he wasn't a huge Star Trek fan either in that first Star Trek movie was pretty good all things considered i agree and it's funny i mean i think part of that is that when he got attached to star trek he like i think he went back and watched watched the series and kind of got a handle for it as long as someone knows the source material if they can adapt it uh, in a way that pays tribute to the original material it i don't think 
necessarily that it matters if they should be a fan, an existing fan or not. But I think that at least this is the way my brain works when I read a book is like I'm constantly thinking like this is how I would adapt it. This is how I would like to see this translated to a screen. Um, so I would hope that other people would have that in mind. I wouldn't – with something as expansive and important to me as The Dark Tower, I would hope that someone wasn't assigned it. But – um but yeah, but that's that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. I've I've read The Dark Tower. I'm re- currently reading it a second time. Um, my first my first uh, Stephen King book was The Shining. It scared the crap out of me um, when I was in high school. Like like I was in high school and I was like terrified of this book. And it was something that usually people like read Stephen King at a young age and they're terrified by it. But um, I read I read it like in the middle of the day in high school in the middle of my living room broad daylight and i was like jumping at every small noise it was it was amazing how do you find the time to read nowadays with the podcast and your job and editing and all the ptv that's out there as well as yeah. film it just seems like it's the one thing that would go by the wayside absolutely and it has to an extent um i go through kind of droughts where I don't read anything, but, um, it helps a lot that my job, I do like nothing at it basically. So I have wow. tons of downtime, so I can either browse Twitter or look at Reddit or read a book. And that helps a lot. Um, how often do you listen to an audiobook versus actually reading a book? I only really only read. I can't like, I can't do audiobooks because it feels like the, <laughs> the, the comparison I make to it is that it feels like they it feels like someone is invading my brain and trying to put images in my brain instead of me reading it and putting them in there um, uh, myself. That's interesting because you enjoy podcasts. Exactly. That's why I like audiobooks because it's like listening to a podcast only it's not, but it's the same type of effect. Right. And I, I find myself focusing more just like I do when I'm listening to a podcast. So. You know, different strokes for different folks, but yeah. that's just interesting to me that you prefer reading straight up. Yeah, and it's maybe it's something that I haven't really given audiobooks a fair chance at. I did listen to um, uh, one of Patton Oswalt's books, which I thought that that would be a good way to introduce myself to audiobooks because that's that's nonfiction. It's it's more of an essay form, so it would be a nice way to ease into kind of a more narrative fictional book and everything because i kind of just get this weird hang up where i'm like i don't know and also when i listen to podcasts it's kind of a more passive experience than than reading a book so it's i kind of want to get drawn into it and i think just knee-jerk reaction when i listen to something that's podcast like i kind of go into this passive mode where i don't really pay close attention or i pay i pay attention but i feel like i need to pay more attention if it's a, a story i'm being told you only pay attention to the Film Schlubs podcast. Of course, yes. Everything else you're passively <laughs> listening to. Right, exactly. Um, but yeah, so – and I will say that 112263 might it, – it's hard to say what my favorite Stephen King novel is because it kind of goes uh, – it's – I don't know. It's it's It kind of goes from one thing to another. But 112263 is absolutely one of my top – probably top five favorite book so i was really excited for it to be adapted and also i feel like yeah oh yeah and I, also i feel like also i feel like that stephen king is a writer who deserves to be adapted in a mini series format or a long form 
format because you can't he's the thing that I love about Stephen King's work is that everyone thinks that he's a horror writer, but he's more the the appeal of his work for me is that he what he does is he takes ordinary people and he can he creates these incredibly relatable everyman people um and every woman people um and has a really ro- well-rounded character and then throws them into something completely abnormal, completely supernatural or just really just out there experience and the the effect is that they respond like you would and it's something you can relate to and it's just really amazing work so i think that in terms of adapting that to film you can't really do it in one movie or anything like that you need to have room to stretch it out i like that you cannot pigeonhole Stephen King's work. He can wear oh, yeah. he wears many different hats, whether it's sci-fi, whether it's horror, whether it's just a traditional story about the condition of men, you know, in prison. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's multifaceted, so yeah, for a lot of people who think he's just a horror guy, that's just not the case, even from someone who doesn't read his books yet, right. at least. And that's something that he that I think past adaptations struggle with because they kind of think, okay, well, I'm going to adapt the Stephen King, the Stephen King novel. Let's take what's scary about it and just run with that. Like, um, I'm kind of blanking on an example of that. Um, probably does, does his son, Joe Hill appeal to you? I know I interrupted, but oh, oh no, you're fine. Um, I've heard that reading him feels like reading young Stephen King, which could hmm. be good or bad really, but that I've read it in a positive. I'm surprised he never developed, the story where he was hit by a car outside of a baseball field. I'm surprised he never took that story and played with it in some sort of sci-fi genre type way. He sort of did a little bit. Um, he, uh, you would know more than me, of course. Right. And he, like he's for better or worse, he did kind of put it into, he injected it into some, that plot device or that, uh, experience into certain, books that weren't really that uh well received at least uh, mm. i don't want to spoil i don't want to spoil anything but um he but on the flip side he also did write um a book called duma key that's about a guy who experiences a really um a really traumatizing accident at like a construction site that um i think he loses a leg um and then he kind of goes off and he goes to um he goes to a town and kind of just lays there or uh, lives there for a while. And then crazy supernatural stuff start happening. I haven't read it um, yet, but, um, but I'm really eager to. And I think that was part of him working out what happened to him. But then after his accident, he also really rushed the end of the dark tower series. So it's, Mm. it's kind of, it's kind of hit or miss with um, him injecting himself into certain things. Has he maintained Um, quality since the accident for the most part? It's funny because he basically uh, – in his kind of later books, he wasn't – I don't think he was doing that well. But I, re- I think around the time um, Under the Dome hit and I want to say 2008, that's when like he just had like a resurgence. Like Under the Dome was freaking amazing. Um, if, if you watch the show or anything, it doesn't do it justice. But it's the whole novel. Not. Yeah. Sorry, Dean Norris. <laughs> yeah. I was so excited for that. I Like – if you go back Sorry, to the Britt podcast, <laughs> too. If you go back to the like second episode of the podcast, like I was so on board with 
the idea of um of under the dome and i was thinking like oh it's going to be a huge hit it's going to be like the next lost and it's just really naive when you go back and listen to it now <laughs> but um but under the dome the novel was amazing it's just like again it's like he it's his specialty is creating these really down to earth characters normal characters and even you know psychopathic characters as well um but this in that novel it's like an entire town and they're all it's I'm looking forward to rereading it again um, at some point in the near future. But Did Dean uh, Norris fit the character from the book at least? He did, but I don't think the writing on the show was really there for him. But Big Jim. He, yeah. But he uh, – in the book, I, I could definitely see him as, as Big Jim Rennie. Um, but yeah, and after that, he kind of had a really good – resurgence and now he's to go back to talking about his um the different genres that he writes in and stuff like he's i think in two months he's going to release the third of his uh uh uh, bill hodges trilogy which is a trilogy of detective novels (laughs) and it's Hmm. something that he hasn't really done before he's got the creepiest looking house i love looking at pictures of his house (laughs) he does he really does one of the things that i really want to do is i want to go to maine and apparently there's like a tour of stephen king in Maine where it's like they go through all these places that were influenced that influenced uh, influenced him and places that uh, they make connections to the books and everything and it stops at his house and they see like the the big spider gates and everything like he right. has this weird obsession with spiders and it freaks me out all the time because I'm pretty strong arachnophobic but um, wait does he live in yeah. Lisbon I mean that's where eleven twenty two sixty three takes place, but no, I want to say he lives in Banger, I think. Okay, yeah, that sounds yeah. right. Yeah, um, but yeah, so yeah, eleven twenty two sixty three was adapted by uh, the showrunner was Bridget Carpenter, who she worked previously on uh, Parenthood, Friday Night Lights, Dead Like Me. Um, have you been familiar with her work before eleven twenty two sixty three? Friday Night Lights is one of my top five shows of all time. Parenthood is a great show that I love most of, so I, I do enjoy her work. <laughs> nice. I, I love Friday Night Lights. I always refer to it as Friday Night Lights. Um, I also like Dead Like Me when I when I watched uh, bits and pieces here and there, um, and I'm just now starting to get into Parenthood, so um, so I, I like her work. I played a, con- a rock concert in the town that inspired the Friday Night Lights story, the book, really? the film, etc., Nice. That's awesome. And I, I actually toured that campus, that high school where everything took place. Wow. So I don't know what that has to do with anything we're discussing, but <laughs> there you go. It's still pretty awesome. I I, I love the movie. Um, the movie is one of my favorite sports movies, um, basically. But uh, So to get into our review of 11-22-63, um, we're going to start with a brief kind of spoiler-free overview of our thoughts on the series as a whole or the event series, basically. Um, and then we'll just dive right into spoilers because this is a bonus episode and might as well figure out – or I figure that anyone listening to it is going to have watched the show beforehand. Right. So, uh, so why don't you tell me what your kind of overall thoughts on the series was um, – well, eleven twenty two sixty three was a show I was really looking forward to since I love time travel, whether it's Back to the Future, Looper, uh, even Groundhog Day to a certain extent. Some people might disagree with that, but you could argue that it's time travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the, four, the first two Terminators, Bill and Ted, as well as Lost. But I also enjoy time travel films or shows such as the less celebrated works, whether it's Time Cop, the butterfly effect 
or hot tub time machine. So <laughs> in this case, I really enjoyed the pilot and the finale. But I felt that this show tried to have its cake and eat it too in between those two points. As the, the Kennedy assassination pulled James Franco and his character of Jake Epping one way, while certain characters pulled him another. And when you look at Back to the Future, what makes it so successful is that Marty is trying to change or shape the future in a way that involves the people he cares about so that you don't have to juggle multiple plots at the same time. In this case, certain characters were designed to keep the Kennedy investigation going while Jake could spend time elsewhere. Josh Dumel and T.R. Knight, I felt, played very similar characters, and that led to some redundant storytelling at times, as well as repeat consequences involving Jake and other sympathetic characters. So I think, I think the show could have been shorter while narrowing its focus on the Kennedy assassination as well as one other character. However, if you're interested in the Kennedy assassination and have a fondness for time travel or Stephen King, I really recommend watching it. But speaking for myself, it didn't live up to my expectations, which I admit were way too high from the get-go. So if you temper your expectations, I think you'll enjoy the show, given the genre elements that it plays with, as well as the great performances from James Franco, Sarah Gadone, and Daniel Weber as Lee Harvey Oswald. Well said, and I I, uh, I think I liked it a lot, quite a bit more than you did, but I definitely can see your uh, see your point of view there. There were certain things that I didn't really like about it, although, um, and we'll get into that in spoilers. But the yeah. the the character you referred to, um, I wasn't on board with that aspect of it, but I could tell why they did that or why they made that choice. Um, so I could kind of see I could kind of see why they would kind of split a big part of the story um, between two characters, uh, I, I guess I would say. We'll talk more about that in spoilers, but I could see why they did it, but I don't know if I was really on board with it because it felt kind of hollow to me or it felt very... Forced? Forced, yeah. Yeah, it felt very forced to me, and I, that was something that kind of... From the get-go, I was worried that it would drag down the story for me, and it did in places, but I did appreciate where they took certain characters in certain situations. Um, I, I can see your point about uh, Dumal and uh, T.R. Knight being similar and redundant to each other, but I kind of I feel like they, they are their own entities uh, a little more they're a little more their own entities than um, than what what you would have uh, had them be um, in your analysis of it. I'll give my reasoning in spoilers, of course. Good. I just don't want to yeah. get too detailed. Right. Yeah, and I'm trying to step around it a little bit. But overall, I thought that 112263 was one of my favorite recent Stephen King adaptations. Um, that's, I mean, that's kind of stumbling through it because, uh, like, there's so many of his work that has been adapted to the screen that it's kind of hard to see where it lands with everything. But I think that 112263 could really, I hope that, I hope that other services or even Hulu kind of sees this as, um, as a way to get into Stephen King adaptations because the, like I said before, this is a, this is a format that I think is really conducive to well-told stories with, with characters that you can relate to. And some of that they fumbled in the miniseries, but 
so everything's there, but it's it just some of it didn't connect. But when it did connect, it connected in a big way for me. Um, and by the end of it, I was I was totally enthralled with it. Um, once they kind of did some did some things later in the later in the run and kind of cleaned up the story a little bit, it kind of got into a mode where it was very much uh, uh, breakneck a uh, breakneck pace, and and it just kind of really had me excited to see how they ended it even though i knew how they ended it because i read the book um so yeah overall i thought that it was a it was a really strong adaptation of a great stephen king novel and something that i really hope uh, people connect to and hope that it ushers in more adaptations like it um it's not without its faults but it was definitely a great ride for me and a lot of fun um and i thought that franco was amazing uh, Daniel Weber also was amazing. I liked what T.R. Knight did. Um, and uh, some certain other characters were a little bit off, but I, I, for the most part, I loved the acting overall. And and the visual style was amazing. I thought that it was freaking beautiful. And the depiction of the, of the past was just... You instantly felt connected to that era. And you could see why characters kind of attached themselves to that and made certain decisions and stuff like that. Or you could see how Jake could connect to it uh, pretty quickly as well. So, To your prior point, Carpenter and Franco are already talking about doing another Stephen King adaptation, just like they did this one. That's fantastic. Have they said Have they said a cer- any certain ones? They mentioned one. I'm just blanking on it at the moment. But there are definitely discussions based on how much they enjoyed working together on this project. That would be awesome to see. And I've I've read uh, interviews with Bridget Carpenter where she's a huge Stephen King fan. I think I don't know how she got 112263. I think it was I think it was something that was up in the air. But I mean, she talked about how she loved the series. And there's so many. So many uh, Stephen King um, Easter eggs in this in this series. It's kind of it's kind of insane, and it kind of speaks to I've talked about it on the podcast before, and I won't I won't stress it that much. But it really it really speaks to how much I want a Stephen King like shared universe thing where everything is interconnected. I would love that so much. Idea. Oh yeah, and the Dark Tower would be the center of it, and oh, I, in another world that has happened, and it is the best thing ever. But I'm I'm still disappointed that Cary Fukunaga pulled out of his It remake because of creative differences with the studio. Me too. Me Will too. Poulter, Will Poulter would have been the clown, of course, mm-hmm. and such a bummer. Yeah, uh, I hope that that I hope somehow that gets made the way that, or I hope that. Well, it'll probably never get made the way that he but envisioned it. But they're still making it in the studio, but it's not it's not Cary's version, of course. Yeah, it's I don't know. It's. Ugh, I, I was really disappointed by that. So why don't we uh, go ahead and go into spoilers if if you have anything else you want to say? Sorry, one more. I just I'm curious about one thing. Mm-hmm. Because you're a fan of the book already, are you able to kind of compartmentalize your fondness for the book when you go into a film or TV adaptation, or do you find yourself sometimes having an increased fondness for something because you love the book so much? That is a really good question and i i don't know i'm i feel like i'm pretty pretty i feel like i'm able to remain objective to an adaptation um when i go into it 
having known the source material so well, I don't know if I can really follow through on that claim because some things might be some reactions might be due to uh, having known the uh, known the source material. But I intentionally didn't like reread eleven twenty two sixty three because I know that it's uh, it's a mini series, so there's room to really expand on some things. But I mean, it's a it's like a nine hundred to a thousand page book, and it's uh, there's so much content in it that I know that there's no way that any adaptation would really be able to get everything right. Um, and just by default, adaptations in general just don't get the source material material right. And you're kind of going in with the expectation of if you go in with the expectation that it's going to be everything you liked about the novel or the book, um, just talking in general about any adaptation, you're setting yourself up for disappointment because they're completely different mediums and, and, um, and with books, it's, I mean, you're in the characters' heads. There's so much stuff you can, you know, just from the writing and, and uh, the motivations of characters and stuff. While movies and TV, they're a visual medium and it's something that they can't spend, they can't spend like 50 pages or 50 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, if you want to do that equivalent, um, a minute to a page, um, it, like explaining why a character is doing something. Um, so it's, it's going to come at a big drop off and there are some things that, uh, 112263 did that I, to kind of compensate for that. Um, but it's also, it came to a fault with it. So you go into any adaptation, it's going to be different from the source material and it's going to be different from your experience reading the source material. But I try, I definitely try not to let that cloud my judgment or anything. And I might be more predisposed to liking something just because I know the story and I know the story beats of it. Um, but if it's a bad adaptation of something, I'm not going to be an apologist for it. From what I've noticed, book readers are from one extreme to the other. Either they love the adaptation or they absolutely hate it. There's, there's rarely an in-between, at least from what I see. Maybe I'm projecting a bit, but oftentimes... Either they hate everything about the adaptation and betrayed the original source material, or they love it, or they love everything about it. So I'm always curious about the kind of psychology of book readers who were exposed to that material first. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you'll have a field day if and when The Dark Tower actually gets adapted because – I, I this is a small tangent, but I posted on the Facebook page for Obsessive Viewer about it. But um, I read an article or I read a, I read a blog piece that was just a really just – very strongly worded rant about Idris Elba being cast as Roland in the Dark Tower and he spent several paragraphs just explaining like this is the worst thing ever because I've I've I read the books and I've seen illustrations and it just ruins everything about the adaptation and the world and everything and then after several paragraphs of explaining why it's wrong for Roland to be black he talks about how one of the early drafts of the script that have been reviewed, and I think I'm, I hope that it's not um, connected to the current iteration of it. Um, I hope that Nikola, uh, Nikolai Arcel completely revamped it. But um, the original script, I think, when Ron Howard was attached to it, he had completely changed everything about the 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 characters and about the motivations and about the. Um, even the perspective of it, like it starts at a different point in the story um, with a different character. And it's not about Roland, which is the center of the entire series. And so it just blew my mind that he went on a rant about the race of the main character, the main actor, and then claiming to be just a, uh, um, a, uh, 
someone who is very much uh, a stickler for the source material. And then uh, as an almost afterthought, he talked about how it, the script ruined everything. So you'll have people that are just kind of crazy about every minute detail, but they'll also be misguided too. So I don't know. <clears throat> the thing is, though, people like this, even if they chose a Caucasian actor to play the part, mm. they would still find a way to complain about that if it didn't meet <laughs> their the character that they had envisioned in their head all these years. And mm-hmm. people complained about Heath Ledger being cast as yeah. the Joker. So it's oh, not yeah. it, it's not just a race thing. It's a if it doesn't meet what you envision in your head, then all of a sudden they're betraying your experience. But sometimes you got to trust. The professionals, the writers, the directors to have your best interests in mind that you don't see yet. They have an idea in mind. They've done screen testing. Mm. They they are being as careful as possible when they cast these roles. And if they see something, then odds are it's going to connect with audiences because almost every controversial casting in recent memory has paid off. Absolutely. Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck paid off in Mm -hmm. BBS. Oh yeah. Regardless of the movie's quality, right. that paid off. So it's not just a race thing, but I still think it's ridiculous that we still can't look past the color of an actor's skin when the character is so much more complex than their skin color. I absolutely agree. And uh, my final thought on that, and then we can go into spoilers for eleven twenty two sixty three. But I thought you would appreciate this because I'm not too familiar with uh, Scott Eastwood's. Uh, acting, but I think that you have, if I'm not mistaken, you have a pretty, uh, pretty clear opinion of his acting. But there were people that in that article, at least, uh, that was that were saying like, well, the character of Roland was patterned after Clint Eastwood, so uh, it's too bad that he doesn't have like a clone here. Oh wait, hmm. no, he does have a, a son that's acting. Why don't we just get him for it? I'm like, I, I don't like. I think I've heard you talk about how he's not a great actor. Scott Eastwood is. But he is more wooden than the desk I'm currently sitting at. There you go. Yeah. And I was like, I went through Scott Eastwood's uh, filmography. and I was like, yeah, we want someone from, you know, the latest Nicholas Sparks movie to uh, to be Roland Deschain from The Dark Tower. I've seen that <laughs> Nicholas Sparks movie and they edited around him. They gave him very really? little to do in the final cut. So he was just kind of stoic and staring intently at things while Britt Robertson did the majority of the heavy lifting. So he's going to be in suicide squad. He's getting mm-hmm. opportunities. The yeah. guy is getting roles, but I, I don't trust him with a big property, especially one that is beloved like this. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, ugh. so hopefully, well, I know that when it, when it happens, Idris Elba is going to knock it out of the park, but I just I can't wait for the the people that are so uh, so angry about it to kind of have egg on their face. So why don't we go ahead and go into spoilers for eleven twenty two sixty three and really kind of pick apart uh, everything because there's a lot to unpack in this uh, in this story and in this in this mini series. Um, Let's do it. All righty. I don't know whether Oswald was the man who did it. You'll figure out the rest when you get there. You see, the past doesn't want to be changed when you're close to changing something. 
Yeah, feel it push back. Last thing you can say about killing a man is that it's brave. Mr. Anderson, this is Miss Dunhill. She's starting over. When rules are broken, there's a price. Price must be paid to set things right. CIA's pulling the trigger. What do we do now? Then you kill Oswald. Everything you say is a lie. So, uh, spoilers incoming for 11-22-63, and I kind of want to start out by asking you, uh, well, how did you feel about the way the story handed time travel? You said that you're a big time travel fan. I'm a huge fan of time travel um, and everything. Like, you should have seen my face when I heard that Stephen King was writing a book about time travel. It was like the greatest thing that's ever happened. Um <laughs> So how did you think – how did you feel about the way that they handled time travel and the, the kind of – the time travel device um, and how it was handled in this, in, this, uh, in this story? Did you want more information or were you fine with kind of the, hey, there's a, there's a portal. Let's go through it. I'm perfectly fine with the wormhole in the closet of the diner in Lisbon, Maine. My only reservation about it is – why weren't more people walking through this wormhole over the years? Yeah. Why, why weren't more people going through it and discovering this? And, you know, he wasn't the only one walking around that area that was quite exposed to the public when he went back and forth through time. So it, it wasn't meant for certain people only. It's, it seems like anyone could have walked through this. So perhaps this, there's an expanded universe within this universe where plenty of other people have their own stories where they accidentally walk through this wormhole i don't know but i overall i i didn't mind it whatsoever you that's a good question i i loved i love the the way that it handled time travel because it's because if you get kind of uh really caught up in the details of time travel and if you get really caught up in uh, like answering like oh this is this is how this is done this is how this is done you just get bogged down with just really really crazy data that's ultimately not going to matter to anything story-wise. And so I just love the kind of simplistic approach that, like, just go in the closet and you're in 1960. I thought that that was really great and really straightforward. I like that it reset every time he'd walk through, and it would always go back to the same point in 1960. I thought that was really interesting. I thought that, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. And that's something that's really... It, again, it's just really straightforward. It's, it's something that's really easily handled. And... Uh, and I, I'm not going to I'm not going to compare the book to the miniseries that much, but I do want to say that the way that Al in the book um, described everything, um, put into context everything about time travel and his reason, their re, his reason for wanting to go back in time to to save JFK, just I I like the way that it was handled in in the miniseries, and I'm not dogging the miniseries for this or anything, but I just want to just say that the the language that Stephen King used in in the book is like freaking amazing like it's it's just so well done and well written and it's so straightforward and so beautiful like there's a kind of line that kind of keeps repeating throughout the entire novel that's the past is obdurant um hmm. and that's just that takes the place of the time of in the miniseries saying that the that the past doesn't want to change or anything and it's such a big point of the story and it's just it's handled in such a great way um and there's a well, big go ahead what was Al's motivation in the book? Because his motivation in the miniseries didn't quite hit me as much as I thought it would. 
And that's one of the other things that was a big, uh, not discrepancy, but it kind of a kind of big disconnect with with the book is that um, he's it's it's covered in the miniseries that he talks about the butterfly effect, which is which is fine and it's very approachable, it's very straightforward. But there is such a great uh, the entire the entire uh, monologue that that Al has in in the book is just he talks about um, he puts it into a metaphor of, of watershed moments and it's it's a beautifully written metaphor about how okay this one event is going to cause all of this other th- all of this other stuff to happen and just again the language that he used in the book is just so beautiful and of course when if you adapt it to a miniseries it's going to take up a lot more time and it's also not really going to mesh well with the style of the show and the style of the show's writing because i mean stephen king is a fantastic writer and i don't think you can really you can really capture his essence in one by adapting one piece of it and then doing like uh right. like a your own writing basically if that makes sense um yeah. so the language used in it was was great and so i think it's covered in the in the series that it's just he there was a butterfly effect that if 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 uh, JFK isn't killed in 1963, his brother isn't killed in 1968, and and all this other stuff doesn't happen. Maybe Vietnam doesn't happen, and all this other stuff. So it so there are reasons, and it's just more more him just wanting to change change the world and everything. And there's a great in in the book. There's a great uh, thing where he's. Uh, he talks about how all of the little details get lost um, and how there are so many details about the assassination and about what, how, uh, what all it changed and everything that it just gets lost. So I don't know. I, I recommend reading the book basically. Um, but uh, but I, I really liked the way that the, the show adapted the time travel of it because it kind of really just doesn't waste any time. You just jump in and, and you're there. And that's kind of how the book starts out too. Um and I, I can definitely see your point about why other people aren't like why aren't other people walking through the the time portal. Um, and I can I can totally get on board with that. Although I will say that I wonder if um, I mean you can. Well, this is this is really just making excuses for it um, because if like maybe you could say that someone can only someone who goes through the time uh, goes through the portal in present day and comes out. Uh, in 1960, maybe they're the only ones that are able to walk through it. That's the only explanation I can come up with because he's the only one that goes through it. Um, they're the only ones who can go back to present day right. from 1960 if they walk through it to get to 1960. Yeah, right. Yeah, buy that. Yeah, but um, but yeah, that's a good question because he just comes out just right in the open in, <laughs> in a in a in a yard. So that's a good question that wasn't covered in the uh, in the in the adaptation. So. Yeah, I got nothing. Um, what did you think of the way that pa- the past was kind of a big antagonist for Jake throughout it? Um, like I said, in the novel, it's it's referred to as the past is obdurate. It doesn't want to change. And I felt like whenever the past w- w- got in the way of Jake, I, I was – I was afraid that more people like maybe maybe the part of it is a book book reader bias because I didn't have a problem with it because I thought that it's a really great um, wrinkle to put into the narrative of a time travel story adds tension. Oh, absolutely. Um, but I think some of it there there are some things that uh, it ran the risk of being kind of a, not Deus Ex Machina but kind of a yeah. kind of an excuse for the storytelling to take some shortcuts or Plot to manufacture. Yeah, exactly. Um, so how do you feel about that? 
I liked it in theory. I thought the pilot, when the car came crashing through the the phone booth, that made me jump out of my seat. But yeah, other times it felt awfully convenient in order to create conflict and add tension while there were certain moments where, man, why is nothing happening right now right. when he's changing so much of the past and yet it didn't come up in those situations. So I felt they could have been a bit more consistent with the rules that they had set up where the past comes back and fights you a bit. Right. And there were some times where it just kind of seemed, I don't know, like there were times where even I was like, okay, well, why is this? Okay, this is kind of silly that this is kind of taking a uh, taking a turn in a certain way. This kind of seems a little silly. And I was like, well, uh, well, uh, yeah, maybe it's just the past fighting back, like the, the gambling thing, uh, which plays a big part in the book, but it kind of pops up here and there only when it kind of needs to, uh, when he gets beat up by the... Uh, that drove me nuts. They repeated that <laughs> twice, especially later in the in the in the season or in the series when he gets amnesia. I hated that plot point where once again a bookie comes back to haunt him and gets him beat up. And mm-hmm. the, I just felt like everything we had seen to that point was basically a race, which it kind of was. Yeah. And then we spend the last episode and a half trying to play catch up with Jake as he remembers his mission and. And has to find all these visual reminders. For some reason, that just didn't work for me. I felt like we had seen too much for something like that to just wipe the slate clean. That being said, I still enjoy the finale. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't like that story turn. What about you? I, I'm, I'm kind of split Amnesia. down the middle on it. Amnesia, yeah. man, just <laughs> it's so tropey. And- it really is, and it's funny because this is the second time in James Franco's career that I know of. That we've seen him get amnesia. The first one being Spider-Man Three, oh, yeah. um, which I hated so much. But uh, and you know I Spider-Man? mean, yeah, oh god. But um, seeing it in this in this story, I I didn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say I didn't mind it because I I can, I don't know, I I don't know. It, it it's a silly, it's a silly plot device. No matter how you dress it. And I I think it was a big part of the book too, but I'll just leave that out there. But um, in the confines of the story of the miniseries, it kind of seemed – it seemed like you had to really fight to – at least I did – had to fight to think like, okay, well, this is the past you know, getting in his way. And I don't know. It, it just seemed like they could have done any other number of things instead of give him amnesia and – all that like if they if they had uh, if they had established that he was gambling here and there throughout throughout the whole time he was there cuz he only had the one gambling thing and then right. like a big thing which made me just really angry cuz it's like you know start out small don't just do a huge right. bet um save that gambling threat for that point instead of showing it to us already and then doing yeah, it again. Exactly. And let it build up just slowly. Maybe have the same – because I think at the, at the end they say that, oh, he's been making bets all over town. It's the same bookie and that's why he gets you know the crap kicked out of him. It's like why not just establish that as being a running thread throughout every episode? And I understand timing and everything. But I mean just a throwaway line like I'm going to go make a bet. I'm going to go – I need to go make a bet. I need to go get my, get my winning, something like that. Yeah. Just let it slowly build. But – the same know, so bookie. Th- the same bookie is in charge of every hole in the wall bar operation across <laughs> Texas. Yeah, it's a bit of a stretch, but yeah, I don't know. It was yeah, 
but I, I didn't mind as a plot device. The I, I love the idea of the past trying to correct itself. Like like you said, you're a big uh, Lost fan, and I'm a huge like it's one of my top three favorite shows ever. And they kind of have that you know whatever happened happened and uh, those kind of uh, uh, rules established in it. And I just I love that kind of structure to something where it's it's not man versus man. It's not two people running back in time and fighting each other or anything. And it's not. Uh, uh, James Franco going back in the past and just coming across Lee Harvey Oswald and unraveling this plot. It's, you know, yeah. there's forces that are against him. And so I like that. That's what people need to understand is that this is not just someone going back in time to save Kennedy. This is really a love story at the end of the day. And that's probably why I was a bit disappointed was because I was such a huge Kennedy assassination nut in the mid 90s. When I was about 12 years old, I loved the movie JFK that Oliver Stone made. And so I was really thinking that I was going to get the next great JFK story. Mm-hmm. But instead, we got a love story. And I don't mind love stories. I actually quite like this romance in this series. But I was just expecting something else entirely. So that's why I just went into it with the wrong expectations. So if people temper their expectations a bit, I think they'll enjoy this quite a bit. But... For me, for the Kennedy aspect, I just felt like the amnesia stuff completely undermined all the story to that point and made it almost devalued in a way. It just, it it felt like it sucked away everything we were building towards and reset everything within that time period. And it kind of made the end of the, the series more rushed as a result. I like that pace, don't get me wrong. I like how Mm -hmm. they're running through the streets and he's trying to find all these reminders and he ultimately remembers most mostly everything once he visits Lee Harvey Oswald's apartment. But I I just wish they had found something else or built up to it in a less ham fisted manner. You know, don't don't use the gambling threat until the end if you really want it to hit us. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, it it kind of when you kind of pick it apart, it is a little sloppy here and there, um, and I I feel like in terms of the love story, like the the whole story is is a really strong love story. The, the um, and if if it's the focal point, it should be the focal point. That's one of the problems. Why or one of the that's one of the issues I had with the inclusion of uh, the Bill character, which I guess we can kind of jump uh, to that point if you don't mind. Um, Bill, I, I understand why they included this character. He, because uh, I mean, otherwise it would have just been Jake, you know, doing his thing and no one to play off of for a long stretch of the series. But I feel like the big issue that I had with it was that they were too. I I didn't think he fit well in the story at all, and I think that the um, the storyline of Bill being attracted and obsessed with Oswald's wife was just. It didn't fit with the the story, and it didn't fit. It, it seemed to drag down everything, and I feel like instead of having Bill be in the show, even in the show at all, they should have spent that time um, establishing uh, Jake and Sadie, right? And had her be that that kind of uh, confidant to him instead of having him hide from her, and then have the big. Uh, the big lover spat and all that. And then, cause it's not until toward the end where they kind of team up and, and they're working together. I feel like it could have been a much stronger narrative if they just dropped bill and had uh, Jake and Sadie. And having said that, I love the finale and I loved the, 
the resolution of that. I was it definitely hit me in all the right spots, the the romance of it. But I feel like it could have been a lot stronger if they were connected early on, and and it was a, more about them. Uh, so, what did you think of Bill and all that stuff? First off, I, I totally agree, and I kind of wrote up my own version of what I would have done that's similar to that. But mm. I did not like the Bill storyline whatsoever. Yeah. In my non-spoiler review, I said they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. What I meant was they included Bill to keep the Kennedy investigation going mm-hmm. while Jake could go fall in love elsewhere and do other things besides focusing on the Kennedy assassination. So they wanted to have the best of both worlds, and then they used Bill getting too close to Oswald as well as his wife as conflict for Jake once he got back around to caring about the Kennedy assassination. So like you... I would have done a composite character for not just Bill, but also Harry, and that composite character would have just been Sadie. Mm-hmm. And you use Sadie's abusive ex-husband as the Harry's father, as the primary conflict. Jake helps her out of that situation, and then she becomes his partner and confidant in the effort to stop the Kennedy assassination. Ultimately, the ending plays out like it did, where she gets shot accidentally and... Uh, He ends up going back to present day and having the dance with her. But the difference is she's now the librarian at Jake's school and she's being honored by that school. And Mm -hmm. if she if she's essentially the Harry of this version, we establish a friendship between Sadie and older Sadie and Jake in present day before he goes back in time. And she's already confided in him that she had an abusive ex-husband that drove her from Dallas to Maine, where her cousins lived. So you can still keep those points intact. You just make her the Harry at his school while still being this librarian that's honored. So he can still have that dance with her at the school where they have this deep connection with each other. Only she doesn't know that they once had a romance in an alternate 1960s. So... I could explain it in more detail, but I, I think you get the gist of it. Yeah, holy crap! That's yeah, that's a good, that's a good, uh, that's a good idea. That that's something that should have happened. I was all prepared to tell you that no, Harry was necessary, and that they should have kept Harry because I I thought that the relationship between Harry and Jake and the uh, it, also the depiction like that opening I don't remember if it was the opening scene of the entire show or or what, but just the scene where he's telling or he's reading his uh, essay. And it's interspersed with uh, cuts to the night in question or the night that uh, his dad killed everyone. Like I just thought that was incredibly effective. And I I can definitely – I'm definitely on board with your um, idea. I think that that would have been great. Um, Let me add. add, The the problem is Josh Duhamel and T.R. Knight were too similar in terms of the story. Both Harry and Sadie had abusive people in their families. Obviously, Harry's father was – uh, Josh Dumel and T.R. Knight was Sadie's abusive ex-husband, but mm-hmm. they repeated the same type of story, the same type of moment, and Jake has to somehow stop each from happening. I would have been more moved by just doing one and having that relationship with Harry be the relationship with an older Sadie. So I just felt it was redundant. I did not like the performance of T.R. Knight. I like Josh Dumel normally, but not in this case. And, of course, the Josh Dumel storyline brought Bill into the mix. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason why I would have done a composite version where it's just Sadie. 
because that way we avoid Bill being brought into the mix. That way we have Sadie being Jake's partner in the Kennedy assassination stuff. And that way we get the best of both worlds, which is their romance and more of the Kennedy stuff with them working together, not with Bill and then with Sadie sometimes. I agree. Yeah, that's that would have been that would have cleaned up everything. Really, <laughs> it would have streamlined the whole the whole uh, story. Really, um, yeah, I, I can't really argue with that. Um, I did think that like the second that Bill, like, I've I've been a little bit removed from the book uh, for the last like f- four years, basically when it came out. So I don't remember. I didn't remember like the inclusion of Bill there. But as soon as he popped up, and it's just suddenly he's like, oh, he killed my sister, and. And uh, and her baby and everything. I was like, where did this come from? Like, what? It felt so shoehorned in. And plus, do you think when you just get back to 1960, when you go back in time, do you really think that Jake would be willing to let this guy partake in this mission? Right. He's well. He was kind of forced to. But I mean, even then, it's like just you know, find a way to just let him go or whatever. I mean, it doesn't seem, it didn't seem to work that well for me. And I mean, he kind of kept a short leash on him for the most part, but it it was also, like you said, it was just an excuse for Jake to go fall in love while, uh, while, uh, Bill went ahead and and did the whole JFK thing. Yeah. Surveilling Uh, general Walker and Oswald. And, and the problem for me is as a Kennedy nut, Mm-hmm. I didn't learn anything new about the Kennedy assassination or any alternate theories. They really gave us what we already knew mm-hmm. about the Kennedy assassination. And really the focus was on the Harvey Oswald. So I really thought there were some missed opportunities in terms of other conspiracy theories that they could have explored. And it would have been awfully interesting if Sadie was with Jake as they explored these other alternate theories that people have floated yeah. over the years. So Bill just took the story off the tracks for me, but like I said, it started well and it ended well, so it, it was not a complete disappointment, but right. just there, there were some paths taken in the middle I could have lived without. Yeah, I, I, can, uh, I can agree with you there. I still thought it was a strong adaptation overall. Like Even with its blemishes, I thought that it was handled well enough and it was still engaging enough that I, it held my attention throughout uh, the entire run. Did you like the yellow card, man? I, lo- I love that device personally. I did. Oh, yeah. I thought that that was handled really well. And I couldn't remember how it was in, in the book. And I'm glad that I didn't because it was. It, there's a lot more to it in the book. But I, I really like what they did with him here, talking about the time loop and how he can never save his daughter and yeah. all that. I thought that, that was just incredible acting, really, from that from that one scene where he's, where he's talking. He's a very tortured person. I thought that, that was a great, well-done, well um, – uh, handled uh, plot thread that that didn't take up too much time. It's it was just more of a, an otherworldly supernatural kind of thing that just is thrown in there periodically. And I, I thought that that was timed really well throughout the entire run. Um, how did you feel about the way that they uh, handled the JFK stuff? Like I'm I haven't read that much about uh, the assassination or any theories or anything like that. So how did you think about what they did have? Like you said that they didn't have uh, anything new. How did you feel about the way that they portrayed everything that was there? And one thing that I didn't like that I just absolutely didn't like was the, uh, uh, Jake and I think Jake and no, it was Jake and Bill go to the strip club and then it's like, Oh, there's Jack Ruby. And it it just felt like that just felt so out of place. And so, 
just too much of a hey look look what we're doing here kind of like pay attention to me kind of thing like a um a wink at the audience that was just really obtrusive for what they showed they did it well i I went to the book depository about five years ago i went to the grassy knoll i did the museum tour so the way they dressed up the set and made it look like 1963 dallas was very impressive Mm -hmm. i thought Lee Harvey Oswald was amazing. Daniel Weber's performance. I thought the recreation of the the box setup was spot on. It's nearly identical. Nice. So I, I'm really fond of what they did show in that respect. It just, it just didn't give you anything that the average person didn't know about the assassination. Right. There were There's a ton of cool stuff they could have explored, but they just kept to the basics, which makes sense when you think about it because – this really wasn't a story about saving Kennedy. It was about uh, finding love in the past and and knowing when to let it go. And that yellow card man ultimately taught Jake that you know you can't go back and save Sadie. You need to let her go, and she'll come back to you someday. And sure enough, she did when he went back to the present day without saving her, as he met her at a at a celebration of her in Texas. So. The yellow card man taught him a lot, is what I'm trying to say. But for the Kennedy stuff, they did very well in that regard. Nice, yeah. I uh, like I said, I haven't uh, followed the different conspiracy theories, but I there was stuff in there that I didn't know that I, like the whole general uh, Walker. Uh, general Walker. Yeah, I didn't know anything about that. I thought that, that was really interesting and unique the way that they uh, incorporated that into it. Um, I love the interrogation scenes after Jake is caught and arrested. Those are those are really good. <laughs> there was uh, the, and this is such a not stupid line, but just such a, a kind of a cheap shot, really. But uh, I just i i lost my i lost my uh, i lost my shit when um, they said <laughs> when when the president calls him and they're like uh, he <laughs> he has a phone call. And he's like I don't care who who it is. It could be the yeah. president of the United States, and it's just dead silent. I I thought that was really effective and. Um, and in terms of comedy, but I liked the, uh, I liked the fallout of it. How did you feel about, um, well, before we get to that, actually, what did you think of, uh, Daniel Weber as Lee Harvey Oswald? Like the, his depiction of it. He looked just like him. Yeah. I thought he captured what this guy could be like. I'm sure it's not the actual personality that Oswald had, but I thought it was a really effective performance. Nonetheless, he constantly had me, uh, on edge when he was in the room in any scene because you never knew mm-hmm. what to expect from this guy. So I thought between Franco, yep. Sarah Gadon, who played Sadie, and Daniel Weber, they had three very strong performances anchoring the show. Unfortunately, Bill conflicted with all of that. I did not like Bill or the actor performing him. And also, Cherry Jones. Cherry yeah. Jones is an award-winning actress, very popular mm-hmm. stage actress, award-winning stage actress. She seemed completely underutilized in this series. I agree. And, and the times when she popped up, like I feel like that was, that was a, uh, an untapped, an untapped area where they could have really gotten into some really strong character stuff. And, and, um, I guess not really motivations or, or, um, um, there was more meat on that bone for lack of a better phrase. Absolutely. She could have been – they could have expanded her to kind of humanize Lee Harvey Oswald a little more because, you know, he's just kind of angry at his wife a lot and that kind of drives a wedge between 
uh, uh, Bill and Jake because Bill falls in love with with her, and it's just it it muddled everything. It could have been more of a it could have humanized the character more. And uh, I think one of the missed opportunities of it was that at least with Jake and and uh, Josh Jamal's character, I feel like that they could have really expanded on whether or not he could kill him. Um, cause they, they touched on that and there was, there was a question of, could he kill someone like just completely cold bloodedly? Um, even if they knew they were horrible and they touched on that a little bit and then they kind of just didn't really, that kind of fell by the wayside toward the end. Um, and I feel like if they could have humanized Lee Harvey Oswald and there remained a question of whether or not he was just a, just a patsy or, or if he was acting alone or anything like that until kind of, keep that until the the very end i think that that would have been a more engaging story and talk about the motivations of of jake and whether or not he could himself do the thing that he went back to to do i love um, the scene in oswald's apartment when jake finally remembers most of his past memories yeah and he grabs the knife and he's walking slowly with sadie talking in the background and then lee pulls out the baby i thought that right. was a really nice scene and really a nice tense scene and it did make mm-hmm. you feel a bit for Lee. And they, they did try to humanize Lee a yeah. bit. I mean, he was obviously a bit insane, but he did have a cause mm-hmm. he believed in. And that's the sign of a well-written mm-hmm. villain or antagonist is that he did have reasoning for what he was doing. He wasn't just trying to kill the president for the heck of it. He believed in what he was doing. Obviously, it was wrong. It was, it was completely uh, wrong in every sense. But... They, they they rounded mm-hmm. out the character. They fleshed out the character. But Matt, more importantly, what did you think of James Franco's fake goatee in present day? <laughs> oh, man. I thought that there was a oh, – what was the – someone tweeted something about that saying that uh, – the show got infin- uh, infinitely better once he shaved his goatee. Oh my gosh! Like end of season two, Breaking Bad, Walter White is wearing a fake goatee <laughs> as Brian didn't have time to grow one until season three. Which, mm-hmm. if you compare the two goatees from season three, episode one, to the last episode of season two, it's night and day. But it just oh. it reminds me of Walter White's awful fake goatee to close out season two. <laughs> Oh man, I'm gonna have to go back and rewatch that now because uh, I I didn't know that. I'm that's interesting. I uh, yeah, it was it was bad. And as someone who has facial hair, like I have a goatee myself, I'm like, does does, does mine look that bad? Did, am I? Is just no one telling me? <laughs> like if James Franco can't pull it off, how can I pull it off? Also, Breaking Bad episode one of season four, he's wearing a fake goatee because he didn't have time to grow one back. Oh. And it just it takes me out of that episode every single time. So I'm kind of an authority <laughs> on fake goatees, if you will. Right. <laughs> well, I'll send you a picture of my goatee and you can nice. be the I'll let you know if it looks fake um, or not. <laughs> let me ask you something. We, we talked about how time would push back. What did you think of time pushing back in the form of showing characters, their loved ones, be it Bill's sister, be it Sadie once she had died? be it whomever once they had died. What did you think of that version of time pushing back? Once Bill saw his sister, it kind of clicked with me that that I, I was almost on board with his entire subplot or inclusion in the show. Cause I thought that was really effective and that was, it kind of caught me off guard really. Um, and I, I liked it cause it, I mean, it's a, it's a cheap shot on pasts, uh, part, but uh, it was effective. I thought. I thought that was a, a, a clever device for it. What'd you think of it? I thought it was good. I mean, 
obviously it was a bit more impactful when we see Sadie after Jake, you know, after she's dead, after right. Jake gets released. And I thought that was interesting in that sense. But, you know, he was just trying to return home at that point. You know, mm-hmm. we, we need to talk about the alternate present day, the wasteland. Yes. So, oh, yeah. We can, we can, and we can start wrapping it up too because we've gone on for a while. We got to talk about this, though. I mean, killing or saving Kennedy led to a wasteland and a terrible present day. Jake encounters Harry, mm-hmm. and Harry tells him that things went to hell, that encampments were were created that were called Kennedy encampments or something to that effect. Yeah. And so, again, Jake learned there that sometimes the, the past is left, is better left unchanged. And that's why he ultimately decides not to go back and try to save Sadie and relive that romance. So right. what are your thoughts? I, I I love the depiction of it. I love thinking that he goes back and I, I like the idea that he's changed so much that everything has just gone to complete hell in present day. I, I love that aspect of it. And there's some pretty cool Stephen King uh, Easter eggs there. Like if you see in the, in the rubble across the street from um, – from where the portal is, it says Captain Trips, which is the name of the disease from the stand. I thought that was just a really clever touch there. But um, you could see the Bifco Casino from one shot too. That was a joke. Oh God! Back to the Future joke. <laughs> gotcha. The alternate 1985. <laughs> Jesus. But I feel like the dialogue between Harry and uh, Jake in the alternate present, it kind of felt like. You know, it it kind of felt more like, oh, JFK living is the reason why everything is horrible. (laughs) Like, at least that's what I got from it. I mean, there's some more to it than that. But I kind of felt like, oh, okay. So ultimately, it was kind of meaningless. Chris Cooper was wrong in every sense. Saving Kennedy ruined the world. Right. Oh, and uh, before – well, why don't you go ahead and give your thoughts on it Uh, and then – Well, I mean, that's that's – that's the point I, I had trouble reconciling was the fact that we're brought in this story because Chris Cooper believes that saving Kennedy will make the world a better place. In actuality, it would make it a worse place per this story. So what is Stephen King trying to say about saving Kennedy? Is he not right. a Kennedy fan? Is he saying that Kennedy, had he lived, would have ruined the world even more, Vietnam aside? I mean, there's just – I'm not sure what I'm supposed to think politically about the message they're trying to send had Kennedy lived. However, yeah. I do like the alternate present day, mm-hmm. just like I like the alternate 1985 and how Jake had to go back and, and fix things. Only he essentially didn't. And right. my favorite part, my favorite part though, is how he went back to reset things in 1960 upon seeing that wasteland in present day. And he sees Sadie driving by in that convertible with her cousins. He saw her the moment he first traveled back in time when that same convertible drove by. So she was right there. The first yeah. thing he saw the entire time was Sadie. So we thought he was going back in time to save Kennedy, who was in the back of a convertible. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, he was he was there to save Sadie, who was in the back of a convertible. So that was a very nice touch, I thought. I agree completely. And I love that there's still that question of he could, he could still save Sadie, but he knows what what would come of it or what could possibly come of it basically the the chris cooper device that drove me insane because they didn't have a lot of time together yet anytime the plot needed it they would flash back to something chris cooper said to jake that would give him information as to how to 
operate in the past. So it was such a plot contrivance to where, oh man, we're stuck. Oh wait, let's just throw in a Chris Cooper flashback and that way Jake is given the answers to a problem that we have no idea how to solve without this flashback conveniently cut in. That's some very deus ex machina type storytelling right there, I thought. I, I can definitely see your point there. Um, it is It does come across as a bit contrived here and there, but I think that the... I think that they could have made it more effective if they had it more strictly like he has his he has his dossier that Chris Cooper gave him and he had the conversation with him. It would have been better if he was going through the dossier more throughout it because it kind of seemed at the end that it kind of seemed a little uh, a little uh, a little it uh, it seemed a little convenient here and there. Yeah. Didn't most of it burn in the fire though? It did. At bed and breakfast. And I wish that it didn't. I liked that as an as a reason to. Um, I liked it as I liked it as a a reason to kind of kind of think like oh he has nothing he he's he's completely on his own now but they still kind of went through it here and there and everything um, later uh, later on he still used it as a as as a as a guidebook basically so it kind of seemed a little I don't know right they they still had enough information left over to make a few bets here and there but right. Yeah, I wish he had. I wish they had that throughout the series as yeah. kind of a guide. That way, that way the flashbacks didn't feel so clumsy. But yeah. the most clumsy moment for me by far was when Jake hotwires a car <laughs> yes. in episode seven. Uh, and he says, "Oh, don't worry about it. Bill taught me." It reminded me of Jurassic World, where uh, where they where they were like, "Oh, let's let's uh, let's just get. The, we need fire. So here's a here's a match from the matches we had earlier. Or right, oh, look right. at these jeeps. We can we can fix these up because we used to fix these same jeeps. It was that same right. kind of thing, and it it bugged me so much. Um, yeah. Yeah. You want to be showing, not telling. Yet I don't think we ever saw Bill show Jake how to hotwire a car in no. 1960. We definitely didn't. That was Ugh. just that was absurd. But that was a yeah. great episode, regardless. That gives him an excuse to run down the streets and right. You know, I, I like the finale for the most part. So yeah. should we close on the the final dance, the old Sadie with Jake? Yes, absolutely. Because my nephews just came in and. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, let's yeah. So, what did you think of that final scene? Did that work for you? Did that, even though there were a lot of uh, things in the way of the Jake and Sadie love story, did you think that that worked? Did that work on you? Uh, work for you in a, on an emotional level in that in that last scene? It worked on an emotional level, but it would have worked a lot more if she was the composite character mm-hmm. of Harry as well as Bill. If we were if we were introduced to her violent past because she had a friendship with Jake at that school where she also worked as a librarian, she moved right. from Texas to Maine to get away from this guy. If they had gone that route, it would have made it even more impactful. But regardless, I still enjoyed the moment. I love how they intercut Sarah Gadone into there as well mm-hmm. to uh, give you some visual reminders and whatnot. But I thought it was a nice touch. That you know, you can go back and try to change the past, but in this case, the past changed Jake as he had gone through a miserable point in his life, getting a divorce and and not being satisfied with his life until he got this rare opportunity, this science fiction crazy opportunity to uh, go experience something supernatural, and so he fell in love in doing so. And I thought the uh, the moment worked for me. What about you? 
it it definitely worked for me. Uh, I thought that it was everything you said. I thought that that was really great, and would have been a lot more impactful if they if she was the composite character for uh, for that, and she was more throughout it. And also, they they even had the curmudgeonly the older lady uh, faculty member that would have been perfect to substitute for Sadie. But I mean, that's neither here nor there. Okay, good. Uh, my cat knocked over my recording device, <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, and I, it worked on. It worked for me. I, I was such a sucker for it. Like as soon as, as soon as they said her name, I was like, "Oh my god, she never got remarried!" And it was just, it worked. It definitely worked for me. Um, I'm, I was a fan of it. Uh, it's one of the more powerful endings I've seen of in a Stephen King book as well. I thought that that because that's one thing that he doesn't really do that well is he doesn't handle endings that well. And I thought that both the book and the miniseries knocked it out of the park. Um, so the book one. was the book ending was honored in this case. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, is there anything else we need to cover, or should we wrap it up? I, I covered all of my bullet points, but uh, yeah, I think it's a show that people should watch if they're into time travel and the Kennedy assassination. Mm. There's some good stuff there. Just temper your expectations. I can't say that enough. Absolutely. And does it, uh, do you, will this inspire you to at some point, uh, read Stephen King or check out more of his stuff? You know, it's interesting. I've thought about reading the Dark Tower series in the past, but now that I know it's going to be a movie eventually, <laughs> I'm kind of on the fence about doing that just because I really value the movie going experience and I mm-hmm. prefer to go back and read the book after the fact to then spot the differences and what I thought the book did better than the movie or differently from the movie. So that's interesting. I don't, I don't think I'm going to jeopardize the dark tower movie going experience at this time. Uh, okay. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. I'm of the thought that the, I mean, the book is always going to be better and they're going to have to make changes here and there. And in the best, in the best adaptations, going back and reading the books will expand expand your view of the characters and, and the plot and everything a lot more. Cause there's a lot more there, but with the dark tower, I mean, I'm a huge fan of it. So I would recommend checking it out just to check it out. But, um, is there more Kennedy stuff in 112263 63 than the novel? Ooh, it's, it's been a while since I've read it, but I'm pretty sure that there is, um, I'm I mean, pretty I, sure I, I know it's been a while, but would you say that you remember the romance more or do you remember the Kennedy stuff more? Um, I would it. say I remember the romance stuff more, but mostly okay. just because it was more of the focal point to it. There might be more tidbits here and there for Kennedy because there's a long stretch where he is – where Jake is alone and he's just doing the investigation. And then right. he he meets up with Sadie and that kind of puts a puts a wrinkle in everything. Um, so I, I would recommend definitely checking out 112263, uh, going back and reading it because there's a lot there that um, – like there's a, there's a lot there about um, – Jake's teaching because um, that's another thing that I kind of wish was more expanded upon is that he is a teacher who went back in time and he is basically influencing all of these young people on a yeah. daily basis. And that's part of the reason why I thought that it would have been better if that was part of the reason why um, why the why the present day was so out of whack is because he's shaping minds in the past when he shouldn't be. And that's that's change irrevocable or irreparably changing the present uh while he does it even though it's all in and uh all well-meaning and everything i think that they kind of dropped the ball there they had kind of the, the two faculty members that were that were okay the miss mimi and uh 
uh, Deke, or I think it was... Uh, yeah, played by Nick Cersei, Deke. Yeah, yeah. Deke, yeah. Deke, I like Deke. Nick Cersei's been a favorite of mine since mm-hmm. he was on Justified, but Miss Mimi didn't really get the the death that I thought that she was. Jay just kind of said, oh, yeah, she died. Which yeah. We knew she was sick, but it was just kind of glossed over a bit, which... Absolutely. Kind of a bizarre choice, but... Mm-hmm. You know, everything he did in the past changed the future. So I'm surprised that the past didn't push back even more mm-hmm. than it did. Yeah, same think here. about it. Yeah, I wish I kind of wish that there was just more to that aspect of it, but I mean, I'm not going to complain. I still enjoyed the enjoyed the show a lot and I kind of <laughs> when when he came back and by the end of it when he's uh when he has his present day class and they're turning in their papers or whatever. Um, I just, I had this, this thought in my head. That's like, shit, man, I, that would be so awkward if they were, if they, cause to the kids that this is the next day. And to him, it's like, uh, what, like three years in the future. It's like, I'm thinking like, how, how is he going to remember all of those kids names? Yeah. It's going to be kind of awkward to kind of get reacclimated to it. But, um, but yeah, that's just a little anecdote I had for that. But um, overall, yeah, I I loved it. I absolutely loved the uh, miniseries with its faults and all. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I guess that about does it for us then. Um, thanks for joining me, Brian. This has been great. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. I, I hope your audience enjoyed it. And I look forward to coming back and talking the path with you as well. Absolutely. That's going to be a blast. Um, and I hope that the show... Uh, meets my expectations because I mean I love Aaron Paul and uh, Hugh Dancy I'm a recent fan of because of uh, I've been watching Hannibal and he's fantastic in it so um, I have high hopes for it um, Michelle Monaghan and Michelle Monaghan is fantastic absolutely um, yeah so why don't you before we sign off why don't you uh, tell uh, listeners where they can find film schlubs and, uh, and follow you on Twitter and everything well, you guys can follow me, Brian Davids, on Twitter at BDF331. You can follow Film Schlubs at Film Schlubs. Remember, that's S-C-H. You can find every episode of our show at filmschlubspodcast.com. You can find us on all major apps as well. Again, I have an interview with Better Call Saul co-creator Peter Gould coming out next week. We talk about his career as well as episode 209 of Better Call Saul, which is fantastic. And uh, check out my other interviews as well, as well as our weekly episodes of TV Talk and Movie Talk, which uh, Movie Talk will restart later this month once Better Call Saul ends. So that's it for me. Thanks for having me on. Sweet. No problem. And it's been a pleasure. And I can't wait to have you on again. All right. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you for listening to The Obsessive Viewer. Presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more of our episodes at OVPodcast.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. The Obsessive Viewer's theme song is An Eclipse of Events and is provided by Loudlike from their EP, Mistakes We Must Make. You can find that and more great music from them on iTunes and like their Facebook page at Facebook.com slash LoudlikeMusic. Any and all feedback on the podcast is encouraged. You can email the hosts individually at Matt, Tiny, or Mike at ObsessiveViewer.com or send an email to the podcast in general at podcast at ObsessiveViewer.com. Check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at ObsessiveViewer.com where we post movie and TV reviews and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. 
You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the obsessive viewer and follow us on Twitter at obsessive viewer at obsessive tiny and at I am Mike white. If you want more obsessive content in your life, check out our sister site, obsessivebooknerd.com for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com and subscribe to the podcast on the podcatcher of your choice. Again, thank you so much for listening. We love you. Be excellent to each other.